Acts chapter 9, we're picking back up. By the way, I hope everyone had a spirit-filled Ash Wednesday, and you've started your Lenten journey well. Uh, but if you turn to Acts chapter 9, we are picking back up with the story of Peter. Uh, we haven't seen Peter for a while. You know, we've gone through um, the, the episodes with Stephen, and then the episode with Paul's call on the road to Damascus. Uh, but now we're flopping back to Peter for a little while, and then we'll return to Paul for the, really the rest of the book. But we've got just a little bit here about Peter. Um, and let me say it this way. we got a little bit here about Peter, but we really have a section about Cornelius. And if you don't know Cornelius, if you don't know Cornelius well, well I hope to remedy that. Uh, the narrative in the book of Acts about Cornelius is the longest single narrative in the book of Acts. Um, and all of you look pretty much like Gentiles to me. So you, you need to really know Cornelius. Cornelius is the beginning of the Gentile movement into the Christian faith. And that's why um, this section about Peter leads us really into the section about Cornelius. So, with that, look at, look at chapter 9, verse 32. This is where we pick back up about Peter. What we see first is Peter healing a man and then a woman. Uh, then we move into the account with Peter and Cornelius. So, chapter 9, verse 32. Now, as Peter... So we're back to Peter. Now, as Peter went here and there among them, because there's peace now. Now, as Peter went here and there among them, he came down also to the saints. That's just a typical New Testament term meaning Christians, those who have been set apart. That's what it means to be a saint. Uh, came, came down among those also to the saints who, who lived at Lydda. Lydda was the ancient name. The modern name of Lydda is Lod. It's a city between Jerusalem and Joppa, because we're going to eventually be in Joppa. Um, so Peter's in Lydda. This is what happens. Verse 33, then he found a man named Aeneas. Uh, okay, Aeneas is very much a Greco-Roman name. Uh, you may remember, I hope, from high school literature, the Aeneid. You know, next to the Iliad and the Odyssey, probably one of the most important books written in the ancient world. Uh, the Aeneid is about that Trojan soldier Aeneas, who after the Trojan War makes his way all the way to Rome. Not that same Aeneas, but a different Aeneas, but obviously, again, a Greco-Roman name. So it's a fairly common Greco-Roman name here. So uh, here's a Greco-Roman person, at least named with a Greco-Roman name. He's in Lydda. And you're going to learn something about this Aeneas. He found a man named Aeneas bedridden for eight years who was paralyzed. So a serious, serious paralysis. The text doesn't tell us what caused the paralysis. He's been paralyzed for eight years, bedridden. Verse 34, And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. A couple things you need to note there. He Peter does not say, I heal you. Peter says, Jesus Christ heals you. Because again, we've said this several times, what, what Luke wants you to see in the book of, of Acts is that Jesus continues Jesus' ministry post-resurrection, post-Pentecost, through his followers. So Jesus continues to heal, but today Jesus heals through his followers. Here you see Jesus healing through... Uh, Peter. And you see that Jesus heals Aeneas, um, and then Peter, to confirm the healing so that people can see the healing, says, rise and make your bed. Now, again, it's first century. There are not sheets and mattresses <laughs> in his bed. Um, that's your world, not their world. Uh, it would have been like a mat, is, is what he'd been laying on. So he just is being told to fold up his mat, fold up his mat and, and um, walk off. 
And it says, and immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon or Sharon, Sharon or Sharon is a plain. It's not a city. It's a region. It's the coastal plain. And we're, we're going to hang out from here through the Cornelius episode on the coastal plain. If you have a map of Israel, uh, you're going to be on the coastal plain. You're going to be on the western side of Israel on the plain uh, with the Mediterranean Sea. Um, Lydda is on the way there. Lydda is part of that plain. And you notice all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Uh, you'll see the same thing happened in the next healing. It was John Wimber who, back in the 70s, uh, kind of retaught the Christian community about power evangelism. And um, power evangelism is where God allows the miraculous or the powerful to occur in order to help people come to Christ. Uh, how many of you, and I'm curious, how many of you have uh, gone to the movie theater and seen The Jesus Revolution? Some of you have. Good. I highly recommend it. I highly recommend it. I'm not a moviegoer. They're way too long. I bore so easily. My wife tries. And if I watch a movie, I'm going to watch it at home because I can stop it and do what I want to do for a while. But uh, we did go Saturday uh, to see the Jesus Revolution. Um, it is um, the story of one of the greatest awakenings of our age. It's the story about the Jesus people. They weren't always called Jesus people back then. But it's the story about the Jesus people and, and how um, there was that great renewal movement uh, in California where all those hippies all of a sudden showed up into Chuck Smith's church. And um, Chuck Smith um, received them, lost some of the people that were in his church, Calvary Chapel, and it birthed what became known as the Calvary Chapel movement, uh, became a renewal movement. In, in, in the movie, you, you see this happening, and uh, you see how um, there was a reporter from Time Magazine recovering re that, covering that, so of course it became uh, nationally known and uh, it was one of the greatest um, renewal movements, such as some of what's going on right now in the Christian world. I hope you're aware of it. I hope you read some Christian news occasionally. But uh, the, the Jesus movement, or you may remember it as the Jesus Freaks, back in the early 70s. I remember hearing it termed that back in the 70s, when I was very young, by the way. I, I heard it termed that back in the 70s. But uh, the movie is very good. I, I encourage you to go watch it. Uh, the portrayal of uh, Pastor Chuck Smith is very good. Uh, the, the, um, it, it's, it's, it's good. Go, go watch it. Um, anyway, part of what you see in that movie, for those of you who have seen it, is you see that um, in Chuck Smith's congregation, there ends up being a somewhat of a division between Chuck Smith and um, the other person that sort of brought the hippies into the Christian movement, between, between those two, over power evangelism, uh, over healing, over um, perhaps a little bit more theatrical display of healings. Um, you see Catherine Kuhlman in the movie, um, somebody portraying Catherine Kuhlman in the movie, uh, because that was on the side of the church that was recovering healing. Uh, but it was during that period um, and right after that period, when John Wimber helped reintroduce the church, has been going on for quite a while now, has been reintroducing the church um, to, the, to the healing ministry of Jesus. Uh, literally for centuries, we sort of lost that from the body of Christ. Um, in the 70s, well, actually from the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, we've recaptured the healing ministry of the body of Christ. Uh, everybody's calm, calm down now, and they do it the way that they feel comfortable. You know, um, we have a healing service every Wednesday at 5.30, anointing with oil. We sort of do it in the more sacramental, Lutheran, liturgical, Catholic, liturgical, Roman Catholic, Anglican way. Um, yeah, we don't do it the Oral Roberts way, but it's the same sort of thing. But if you see the movie, The Jesus um, Revolution, uh, Chuck Smith, what, he, he started calling it, the theatrics 
of some of the healing movement that was coming into to that movement. And it ended up a split for a while, but at the end of the movie, when you see some information about how history plays out, you see that they sort of reconciled. But particularly back in the 70s, people were responding in weird and dramatic ways, and sometimes not really healthy ways to things they didn't understand. But everybody's calmed down now, and, and the whole body of Christ has recovered healing, and, you know, whether it's the old sacramental form, which became last rites, and it was meant to be that, but became last rites or anointing of the sick um, in the Roman Catholic and more liturgical traditions, or just prayers of healing. Um, in, in, in the more lower church traditions. You know, it's amazing to me that we lost that ministry for centuries because it's clear in the book of Acts that one of the reasons the book of Acts is given to us is to show us how Jesus continues the ministry of Jesus to his followers. Um, but what some people, and we've discussed this before, when the church lost some of the miraculous, when the church lost some of the supernatural, you actually had some Christians who, who created a theology to support that. And they said that after the giving of the canon, after the giving of the scriptures, um, after our hard copy of scripture, uh, we received it, um, some of those miraculous aspects fell away. They just, they just, um, they just um, were connected with the age of the apostles. Where do you get that at? And that's absolutely nowhere. Uh, there's one, um, one three-word place in one place in one book that some people grabbed hold of because that made them nervous, the, the supernatural and miraculous. They found those three words in that one place in that one book, and they created a whole theology of secessionism. They said, oh, all that stuff stopped with the apostles. And what that, what that did was that made people who should have felt guilty over it stopping because of spiritual weakness. It kind of gave them a theological reason to endorse it. John Wesley, by the way, a little plug for John Wesley. John Wesley was unique in his age because he, he, he affirmed that a lot of the stuff had stopped. You know, that whether it was the more miraculous parts of the work of the Holy Spirit, he affirmed that it had kind of stopped by and large, but he didn't create a theology to say that's the way it should be. John Wesley said, rightly so, some of that stuff had stopped uh, because of the spiritual weakness of the modern church. And part of it was John Wesley was experiencing some of it, Contrary to his typical Anglican world, he was experiencing some of the supernatural and the miraculous uh, in those early Methodist meetings. So either, if, if you say it stopped and all of a sudden you're seeing it, you got to do something with that. And you either say it's of the devil or it's a counterfeit or it's of God. You don't have many other options. So he said it was of God. Uh, he said, don't seek the theatrical, but he says, you know, God can do pretty much what God wants to do. And the supernatural and the spiritual didn't die away with the apostles. And again, I don't know where the Christian church ever found that theology. And by and large, it's, it's almost dead now um, because, um, well, it should be. We see God doing miraculous stuff all over the world. We see the supernatural invading the natural all over the world. And because it's not happening to you, don't make a theology that it shouldn't happen to anybody. Maybe think on it at a little bit more profound level than that. Anyway, back to the book of Acts. It's clear in the book of Acts, Jesus is continuing his ministry, the same kind of ministry he had in the Gospels. He's continuing it through the church. So you see a healing of Aeneas. Now you're going to see a healing of a female. Look at verse 36. Now there was in Joppa. Okay, Joppa. Joppa, you know about Joppa from the Bible. That's where Jonah went to jump on a boat to run away from God. Doesn't even sound like a smart idea. And it wasn't. Uh, but Joppa was the old harbor city, coastal town for, for Israel. Um, Herod eventually created the new Caesarea on the coast. But Joppa was the seacoast town. Uh, so you see now, you see, um, you see that Peter now has gone to Joppa. Uh, Lydda is that city on the road between, as I said, Jerusalem and Joppa. He's on the seacoast. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha. 
only place in the New Testament, though we see this all over the New Testament, this is the only place in the New Testament where the feminine word, the feminine Greek word for disciple occurs. Um, but it's all over the New Testament. Women were disciples of Christ, just like men were disciples of Christ. Uh, women were learners, apprentices who had connected with Christ. And you're going to see one here. He's in Joppa. There's a disciple named Tabitha, which translated mean Dorcas. Tabitha is the Aramaic for gazelle. Dorcas is the Greek for gazelle. Just like Paul had Hebrew Greek names, um, a lot of people did. Uh, so here, Tabitha Dorcas is the same one. It depends on whether you're calling her that in, 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 in Hebrew or Aramaic um, or Greek. It means gazelle. Uh, a gazelle, by the way, and you, they're still in the Middle East, still around the, the state of Israel. They are like small antelopes. Uh, they're beautiful. They are swift. They are um, gracious. Grace, graceful, I guess is a better word. Graceful, but they're small antelopes. Anyway, don't know what all that means about this person being named Gazelle, but that's, that's this person's name's Gazelle. And uh, you can say that in Aramaic or Greek, Tabitha or Dorcas. Anyway, what we do know from the text, she was a, an amazing person. She was full of good works and acts of charity. You'll notice she has died in a few moments. Um, you know, I hope for all of us when we pass, we'll be remembered as, as people full of good works and acts of charity. Certainly, um, Tabitha or Dorcas was. Verse 37, In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Uh, that's a typical way of taking care of a corpse in, in Judaism, still to this day, uh, in observant Orthodox Judaism, the women uh, wash the bodies of the women, the men wash the bodies of the men, you wash to prepare them for anointing, uh, and then you you bury quickly, even today, in observant Orthodox Judaism, because you, you, there's no embalming going on, so you usually bury them within 24 hours, is sort of the norm. But notice what's happened here. They have wash so that they can anoint, and rather than, we've noticed this for the last couple thousand years, hope you have, rather than going out and burying her, they take her and put her in the upper room, an upper room. Uh, this is almost certainly her home. The fact that there's an upper room says she was not only a woman full of good works and acts of charity, she must have been a woman of some means also to have a dwelling with an upper room. That was unusual. Uh, in this age, in this place. So, but they, they don't take her out and bury her. They take her to the upper room. They must have been hoping for something else to happen, with even some sense of expectation that something else might happen. And again, the early Christian community, almost as if there was a force field around it, there was stuff going on that was confirming the gospel for people, that was getting people's attention, that made them a little more um, apt to pay attention to the gospel. So they take her and lay her in the upper room. Look at what they do, though, after they do that. Verse 38, Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging, Please come to us without delay. So they put her in the upper room. They go send for Peter. They've heard about Peter. They've heard about these early Christians who are doing things like healing the sick and raising the dead. So they send word to Peter. He's in Joppa, modern-day Jaffa. Uh, by the way, Joppa's a beautiful place. Some of you may have been to Joppa with me. When you're on the coast there, you can look across the water and see the modern city of Tel Aviv. The modern city of Tel Aviv that was founded in the early 20th century is the modern city in Israel, is the New York City in Israel. The only thing I've ever, ever done with Tel Aviv is I'll end up being Urian Airport and get out of the city. Um, one of these days I'm going to go just experience Tel Aviv because people tell me you cannot believe the difference between like Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. Tel Aviv is the modern city. But I, I'm, I'm content with being in Joppa and looking across the water and seeing the big high-rises and towers. It looks like a New York City. But Tel Aviv, and that's why you hear about Tel Aviv a lot. That's why, uh, for instance, um, that's where our, our, our embassy was, like a lot of countries. Our embassy was in Tel Aviv. That's their big city, their major city. 
Um, they're, they're, they're Atlanta, Charlotte kind of rolled into one banking center. Uh, but then recently, um, yeah, of course, we moved, our, we moved our embassy to Jerusalem, you know, out of, out of uh, Tel Aviv. You know, we finally said, well, the state of Israel says their capital is Jerusalem. So we let them tell us who their capital was. And so we moved our embassy to Jerusalem. But Tel Aviv is an amazing place. It's big, it's huge, it's... It's not what people think of when you think of, uh, of, of, of Israel. But anyway, Joppa is a beautiful little city. Uh, and sometimes uh, if we land in Tel Aviv, Ben-Gurion Airport, depending on when we land, if we've got extra time before I can get in a room and go to bed, um, I mean, if i got extra time before the rooms are ready, we'll, 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 we'll pop down to Joppa. It's a beautiful little seacoast town that you can walk around in. And you can see... What I'm getting ready to read here in the book of Acts, you can see a place for for Simon the Tanner's house. You can see a church that supposedly marks the spot where Tabitha was healed. Anyway, so you're in Joppa, beautiful place. Um, so here, here, there in the upper room, lit is about a four hour walk for Peter. Um, he probably did walk. So they say come without delay because they know if he if you really you know, really makes speed. He, it'll take four hours for him to walk up. But anyway, he does. As they say, come without delay. Verse 39, so Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows, um, probably close friends of Tabitha, uh, both the Jewish and the Christian faith has always said in, the, in, in our scriptures, and we see in church Jewish history, we've always worked hard to take, take care of the widows and the orphans in our midst. So evidently part of what um, Tabitha did was she helped take care of the widows. So the, all these widows are up here in the upper room. They're beside um, the corpse of Tabitha. They're weeping. They're showing tunics or undergarments and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. So evidently she was a seamstress or something like that. So the, um, here's Peter. He's arrived. The room's full of people mourning the death of Tabitha. Um, it's really sad when I've done funerals, and it was me and the funeral director and maybe one or two other people. And I know that you can't control all the circumstances of life, but you know I just encourage all of us to live in such a way that there'll be somebody to mourn us when we're gone. Um, or I say on my more cynical days, you know, live in such a way as you give me something good to say about you after you're gone. <laughs> But of whatever reasons, I have done some of those sad, sad funerals, gravesides, where it's me and the funeral director, and sometimes it's been me and the funeral director when someone's died. Anyway, her room's filled with widows that she obviously had cared for. Um, verse 40, but Peter put them all outside. Well, you should ask, wonder why? Well, the best reason is that's exactly what Jesus did when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter, that looks an awful lot like this same text here. He, uh, and I think Luke wants you to see this and see that this is almost identical to the story in the gospel where Jesus raises Jairus' daughter, even to the extent of being in the upper room and putting everybody out. Uh, the other thing that may be going on here, you know, sometimes we have to work a little bit uh, to create sort of a holy atmosphere we have to work a little bit to kind of create a place, a space, um, where, where God can show up with his manifest presence. I mean, God obviously is always around us. God's always with us. God's omnipresent. But what we seek in the church is God's manifest presence. We know he's always with us. He's always around, about, around us. But we like it when he shows up when we know, and we know we have been visited. That's God's manifest presence. And sometimes we have to kind of create the space for that. And, you know, putting out probably these very talkative widows, who I guess happen to be women, help create the space for something very holy to take place because you're going to see Peter pray. You're going to see Peter pray. You're going to see him do it in a way that Jews used to do. They stopped when we kind of had our divorce with the Jewish people, and they realized we kneel, so they decided not to. That's why they don't typically kneel for prayer. We still kneel for prayer. But you see Peter doing it. Look at verse 40 again. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. 
And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. If you recall it from the Gospels, Jesus said in Aramaic, Aramaic, Talitha kum, which is sound an awful lot like this. Again, what Luke wants you to see is the early Christians continuing the ministry of Jesus. That's our role as Christians. Tabitha, arise here. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. I love what John Wesley says at this point in his commentary on the New Testament. At this point, he says, um, for Tabitha, Dorcas, it's just resignation, not joy. You know, she's probably looking at Peter saying, why did you bring me back? I'm sure Lazarus did the same thing. Why did you bring me back um, to just die again? That's why you don't see any evidence here that she, you know, she sets up and she looks at Peter and she's filled with joy and she throws her arms around his neck and says, thank you for doing this. Um, you don't sense that here in the text. She, um, she does come back from the dead. She opens her eyes and she saw Peter and she just kind of sets up. As Wesley said, a spirit of resignation, not joy. Uh, verse 41, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. Talk about an object lesson. He presented her alive. But here's, here comes the point. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. There's John Wimber's power evangelism. Sometimes God does this in order to help people come to the gospel. It's happening all over the places like in Africa now. It was New Testament, the book of Acts. Anyway, many believed. That's what Luke wants you to see. Verse 43, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon the Tanner. This is important. Very important because this, is, this last phrase, that he's staying with one Simon, a Tanner, there in Joppa sets the stage for chapters 10, chapters 11 through verse 18, the long narrative about Cornelius. Uh, if you go to Joppa today, they will show you a house, an old house, ancient house, that marks the spot of um, uh, Simon the Tanner. And of course, the whole city of Joppa is on the seacoast. Uh, the house of Simon the Tanner, of course, is right down on the water, right, clear, right near the water. Uh, you want to take a guess as why if you were a Tanner, you would put your house down as close to the water as possible. And everybody, were glad, everybody was glad you put your house down as close to the water as possible. The smell. Tanners deal with carcasses. They take the hides of animals and turn them into leather can be used, which also made Simon unclean to Jewish folks. Because he was dealing with the dead animals all the time. So, Here's someone that's somewhat ostracized by the community in general because he smells. As a matter of fact, the rabbi said a woman could divorce her husband if he were a tanner because he stunk. <laughs> the rabbis gave them the right to do that. That was a reason for divorce. So this tanner probably was ostracized by the people. He was considered unclean, which is not evil, but just unclean by the Jewish people. He was ritually impure. And Peter goes and stays with them. Uh, just let that sit there a minute, and you'll see why this prepares you for what's coming in chapter 10. Because he's, he's, he's going to go and start ushering in the Gentiles, unclean Gentiles, ritually impure Gentiles, not observant, practicing Jews into this faith about this Jewish Messiah. So again, remember in the manuscripts, until the modern period, we didn't put a big number 10 right here. So sometimes we, we, these numbers make us um, forget about our context. Get rid of the number 10, just keep reading. At Caesarea, again, you got Joppa, to go north on the, on the coast. You got Joppa, which is sort of northwest of Jerusalem. You got Joppa, Today, you got the modern city of Tel Aviv, and then again, north of that, you got the ancient city of Caesarea Maritima. Caesarea is a very significant city. We've already talked about it before. Caesarea is a very significant city in the New Testament. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, 
Um, even what you know about Peter living in the house of Simon the Tanner should tell you that at this point, Peter's opening up to receiving more and different people in, into the community of Christ. So at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. Obviously, that's a Latin name, Greco-Roman. And you're told he's a centurion. That is a Roman commander, military commander. Centurion means he was over a century. He was over a 100 soldiers. By the way, Luke always, in the Gospels too, always portrays centurions in a very favorable light. He could say, oh, these are the evil oppressors. These are the military occupiers of this region. But Luke almost always portrays them in a very positive light. Most of us think part of what Luke is saying, because again, remember Luke is the only Gentile writer of the New Testament. Luke is a Gentile, but he's a God-fearer. He has attached himself to the Jewish community. So he's very pro-Jewish. Uh, he's part of the Jewish community. as a God-fearer. He's a Gentile. So we cannot help but look at his writings where he always shows centurions in a favorable light and go, hmm, wonder why. Maybe part of what Luke is doing is saying there's absolutely nothing um, contradictory between being Roman, even a Roman soldier, and a Christian. Uh, remember the zealots? Those are, that was those Jewish people who tried to like secretly murder Roman soldiers because they were the occupiers. They were the oppressors. Yeah, they didn't think those folks were good on any level in any way. But obviously Luke is, is, is knowing these documents are going to be read by Romans. And he's trying to present the gospel to them. But he always um, takes uh, the centurions. Um, by the way, if you go to Capernaum and you see the ruins of the um, second century synagogue, one of the things you'll learn is the person who built that synagogue, which you also learned this in the Gospel of Mark, was a centurion. Another God-fearing Roman who had attached himself to the Jewish community. The people he was sent there to rule. To the extent that he worshipped in the synagogue, you're going to see that this centurion, Cornelius, prayed in the synagogue. But the synagogue there in Capernaum was built by um, patronage or donations from the centurion. Uh, the centurions probably had some wealth. You're going to see in this text too, centurions had something else that the, the other soldiers would not have had under him, and that was a family traveling with him. He was an officer, so I, I, I'm sure he had his own type of officer quarters and his family's with him. Yeah, the typical soldiers that he, he, he commanded, the hundreds, hundred soldiers that was under him as a centurion, um, would not have had those benefits out in the field. So here's a centurion. He's Gentile. He was, he was part of what was known as the Italian cohort. Ten cohorts make a legion. So, um, you know, you take, he's from the Italian cohort. He's from Rome. He's from the Italian cohort, um, but he's, he's taken out of the Italian cohort. He's one of the centurions. So you're being told a lot about this man. So uh, he's a centurion. He's from Rome. Um, verse 2, a devout man who feared God. That's a technical term, as I've said many times in the book of Acts. He's a God-fearer. It is literally one word in the Greek. A God-fearer are the people that were not Jewish, but they attached themselves to the Jewish faith. Because they liked the monotheism, one God, and they liked the high ethical standards. They, they liked the less promiscuity. Romans and Greeks loved promiscuity sexually. Sexuality was uh, just a human choice, and it was entertainment in the Roman and the Greek world. Jews were very different about that, and therefore the early Christians were very different about that. So some people attached themselves to the Jewish community because they liked the emphasis on one God, uh, the belief in only one God. They liked the, they liked the high ethical standards, which also um, made them very, very pro-family. So you had these God-fearers, and you see Paul. Paul loved to find the God-fearers because they were already halfway to Jesus when he found them. 
if you're God-fearer. You, you don't know the Hebrew Bible. You don't know that the Messiah is supposed to come. Paul always went first. Where, if it's in Thessalonica or Philippi, he always went first to find the um, Jews and particularly find the God-fearers among the Jews. The, the God-fearer was a uh, person who connected themselves to the uh, Jewish community. They were not a full proselyte or a full convert because what was one of the one, one of the things that Mr. Roman Commander Centurion Cornelius w- did not want to have happen in order to become a full-fledged part of the Jewish community? Circumcision. Terrible evangelism tool. I mean, some people don't want a little water put on them, but think about circumcision. So that's why God fears were common. You see them in the New Testament. So here's Cornelius. Uh, he may not be, um, chances are, he could have become a God-fearer in Rome. Today, to this day, Rome has the oldest Jewish community in the world because Jews had to leave Palestine for a while. But when they left Palestine, they were already in, in Rome. So he could have easily come to know uh, the Jewish faith in Rome, but he may not come to know it until he came uh, to be part of the military stationed um, here in, in, in Palestine or, or Judea. Anyway, he's a God-fearer. Um, he feared God with all his household. His family's probably with him. He didn't tell his children or his servants, well, you make your own decision about Christ. You can, you can, you can, you can hang out with Jupiter, and I'm going to hang out with the God of the Jews, and we'll, we'll all be part of the same household. The ancient world did not think along those t- terms of such individuality. Uh, the ancient world thought more corporately whether it's family or nation or people or tribe. So that's why you see like household conversions. I'm sure when Cornelius came to, be, came to some faith in the Jewish God, became a God-fearer, he probably went home and had a nice long chat with all his family, which included his servants, and uh, helped them and shared his new faith with them. Anyways, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God probably in the synagogue. They pray continually to God. Um, you see it evidenced in verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day. And you probably have a study note that tells you that's 3 p.m., but more importantly, that is a set time of prayer in the Jewish community. still is. It's the time of the evening sacrifice that happened at the temple. So he, um, he, he prayed continually to God, and then the next verse you see him praying at one of those set times of prayer. He didn't just pray when the Spirit moved him. Uh, the Jewish and then the Christian community have always believed in setting times for prayer. You know, put it on your calendar. Walk away from what you're doing to go pray because it's that important. Don't just pray when the Spirit moves you. So Jews and then early Christians, and a lot of Christians to this day, have set times of prayer. And the ninth hour of the day was one of those, so he may very well have been praying in the synagogue. He could have been praying at home. About the ninth hour of the day, set time of prayer, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God. Again, in the book of Acts, visions and prayer go together. You don't tend to see them much separated from each other. You know, I made the case with with the um, conversion or call of Saul that I think he was off his horse facing Jerusalem praying because it was at a prayer time. But one of the reasons some of us make that case is usually in the book of Acts, the visions go along with prayer. You know, they're not standing in the line at the grocery store and all of a sudden a vision hits them. Uh, The visions tend to go along with prayer, such as right here. So he's at his time of prayer, a stated time of prayer. He, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come into him and say, Cornelius, verse 4, and he stared at him in terror. I'm sure he did. He stared at this angel in terror, shock, awe, great reverence, probably really afraid, and said, notice this, what is it, Lord? Oftentimes, particularly in the Hebrew Bible, you're never quite sure if it's an angel or if it's God or if it's both of the above. Think about Jacob wrestling there at the river Jabbok. In that story of Jacob wrestling, you're both told it's an angel of the Lord, but Jacob says, I've seen the face of God. So uh, we don't know if God just shows up with an angel 
or the word angel means messenger, so the angel may be a strong messenger from God. So you see a sort of a blending of angels and God showing up in visions which tend to show up during prayer. So, uh, yeah, he, 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 he's, he's greeted with this angel, this presence of God, and he says, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, this is what the angel says, your prayers and your alms, your, your giving to the poor, have ascended as a memorial before God. So uh, this is sacrificial imagery, like what you would do in the temple. And by the way, this is what the Jews finally learned how to do after the temple's destroyed, that your prayer, your study, take the place of sacrifice, take the place of animal sacrifice. And you notice what's being said here. Uh, instead of animal, the, the, the fragrance of animal sacrifices wafting up to God, it's the fragrance of our prayer and our worship wafting up to God. That's why we see prayer and worship. And here, almsgiving being a memorial, a remembrance, a monument um, that wafts up to God. Uh, now, in some Christian traditions... We visualize in our worship because we want it to be a sensory experience. We visualize in our worship that our prayers and our praise and our worship wafts up to God. And what do some Christians and some Christian traditions use to, to show that? Incense. Incense. Yeah. And it actually comes directly from a verse in the book of Revelation. But yes, the sim it symbolizes that our prayers waft up. So here the angel says, yeah, Cornelius, um, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a remembrance, a monument, a memorial, a sacrifice before God. Cornelius must have been a great guy in so many ways. I'm sure people hated him because he was a commander of the occupying army in Judea. Verse 5, And now send men to Joppa, and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. Peter just kept having these people show up saying, come with me. I mean, that, that's just interesting to me. What it says to me, though, is we need to learn how to accept interruptions. We need to learn how to make ourselves available to God. I don't like interruptions, basically. I schedule my life way too detailed. And I don't leave a lot of room for interruptions uh, from God or anyone else most of the time. Um, but what this tells me, because, I mean, you know, they came and got Peter to come uh, to, to raise Tabitha from the dead. Now they're going after Peter to come to Caesarea to meet with Gordon. Yeah, poor Peter just, I'm sure he wanted to say, I, I'm just really chilling. Can I come tomorrow? <laughs> but it says something to me about being available to God and, and seeing interruptions of perhaps being God moments. Anyway, so yeah, here, here Cornelius is given a vision. He's, and the angel says, send men to Joppa, there on the coast, bring one Simon, who is called Peter, from the house of the tanner called Simon. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, because that's significant. And again, I love how the scriptures and archaeology kind of confirm each other. Whose house is by the sea. It's not just in Joppa, it's by the sea. That's where you put your tanner's house. By the sea. Verse 7 When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier, probably another God fearer, another soldier that's God fearer, uh, from among those who attended him and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa to get Peter. Um, then that's where we'll stop at because then you'll see um, how God prepares. Peter, for these soldiers showing up to have him come to Caesarea. Um, from Joppa to Caesarea is probably a, I'm going to say 45 miles, 40, 45 miles. Um, and they're going to come and say, we, you know, the centurion um, and God, and he's going to know it's God by the time he has his vision that prepares him for the coming of these soldiers. Um, they're going to say, you know, you, you're being summoned to Caesarea. Um, one other thing I want to point out, because it's a biblical principle that we've talked about for a couple thousand years, um, but we haven't talked about it much 
I haven't heard people talk about it much in the recent history. Um, you notice here with, with the centurion Cornelius, he is given a certain degree of light. He is, um, he is a seeker after God, and his seeking after God is being rewarded. Uh, Hebrews 11, long about verse 6, it says those who seek God will be rewarded. Now, I, I can't define completely what all the reward is. Here is obvious. Cornelius is a seeker after God. He's received some light. He has acted upon the light he has received. He's a God-fearer. He's hanging out with the Jews. He's rejected the gods of the pagan gods of Rome and Greece, the polytheism of the gods of Rome and Greece, uh, the sexual promiscuity and the loose ethics of the gods of Greece and Rome. You even know from your old cheesy 1950 movies, the gods weren't even good. They were petty and they were tried and they warred against each other. So I can see, we, we can see historically why some people said, you know, these Jews got a little bit more going on over here. Their God is good. Their God is holy. Their God is not trifling or temperamental, like you see in some of those old movies about the Greeks and the, and the Romans. So you got these God fears. So, so Cornelius, he acted on what light he had received. And what you're going to see here is as a result of him acting on what light he had received, he's going to get more light. He's going to get a visit from Peter. Peter's going to be prepared by vision to go see Cornelius. And the end result of all this, by the way, is we're sitting in this room today as a bunch of Gentiles. Yeah, Cornelius is where it starts. You can almost see, well, not almost, you will see a Gentile Pentecost happen in Caesarea, in Cornelia, around Cornelius. Uh, you're going to see a Gentile Pentecost, just like earlier you saw a Samaritan Pentecost, and they both look remarkably like the, the Jewish Pentecost that happens in Acts chapter 2 in Jerusalem. So you're seeing the, the circle getting widened. Now, again, another reason why the book of Acts is, is so... All the Bible is important, by the way. But the book of Acts is important because we are finding ourselves in a community today, a world today, very much like the book of Acts. I mean, the, I may very well meet a modern version of a Roman pagan when I leave here in a little while. I may meet a professing Christian, but I may meet a Roman pagan when I leave here in a little while. We're in a world a lot like the book of Acts. We're in a world that's filled with people who have other gods, who have other sexual moralities, who have other ethics. They don't have the Ten Commandments. They don't know they exist. They, some of them are following Ten Commandment-type rules, not even knowing that God said do this. Um, so we can, we can learn some things from the book of Acts about how we interact, how we intersect with a world around us that doesn't intersect well with us. They don't understand us. They don't know us. They may receive us sometimes. They may not receive us sometimes. How do we interact with them? Well, you see, the, you see some barriers coming down here. And that's sort of the outline of the book of Acts. Start in Jerusalem, go to Samaria, then go to the ends of the earth. Uh, you see some barriers coming down. When you see, um, and you see them coming down in Peter's life. Here's a good Jew going to hang out with a tanner. He's chilling out about some of those ceremonial, some of those civil laws. I would contend he does not chill out about the moral laws. But he chills out about the ceremonial laws. Because again, Simon could have been a, an amazing person, but he was ritually unclean. So the point I'll make in closing, one of the things the book of Acts teaches us, like all Christian tradition teaches us, is we receive everybody. We receive everybody as they are. And, but we don't just affirm everything that they are. We say, let us help you see a different way, a better way. Um, uh, yeah, Cornelius, what you're doing is right, but let me, let me add Jesus to what you're doing. You, you've responded to some of the light you've received. He knows all about the Ten Commandments, one God. He may even be reciting the Jewish Shema every morning. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you shall worship, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. He's probably reciting that all, all every day as a God-fearer. 
who is connected to the best that he can, short of circumcision, to the Jewish community. But he's going to learn about this Jesus thing. And, uh, you know, I'm sure the Jewish community never said to him, when, um, when he attached to them, well, you're welcome and we love you. We receive you. We bring you in. We make you one of ours. You are, you are part of our family now. But if you want to keep being polytheistic, and if you want to keep the, the, the Roman moral code, you're welcome to do that. I'm sure no Jew ever told any God-fearer or, or Cornelius that. You know, they said, we love you, we welcome you, we receive you, but let us, let us together help us find the life that God is calling us to. So the book of Acts teaches us how to cross these barriers and to receive people that are on the other side at, at, at some point of the barriers and how to receive them. Um, but, and you can see this, by the way, all the way to the end of the book of Acts. You're going to see Paul at the end of the book of Acts before he makes it to Rome. You're going to see him worshiping still in the, in the temple when he goes to Jerusalem. Um, and you're going to see Paul say in his letters to people like Cornelius, all the Gentiles, you don't have to keep the, the law in regards to civil and ceremonial law. But yeah, the moral law still stands. And you see that even foreshadowed here in this text where animal sacrifices are being replaced by Cornelius' prayers and his uh, acts of mercy to the world around him. So yeah, I mean, we Christians have always encountered people of different faiths, different stripes. We got a little deluded in the last few hundred years here in the West. We thought we were in a Christian culture and everybody around us was Christian. And the next thing we know, we're saying everything everybody's doing is Christian because we're in a Christian culture. Um, that's not been the benefit of the Christian community throughout most of our history. Throughout most of our history, we've been in communities that were not Christian, like the book of Acts. So one of the reasons I think we desperately need to recover the book of Acts is so that we can learn how to deal with all of these other religions, these other uh, moralities that surround us. And um, that's why you're going to even see like Paul when he goes to Athens. He's going to do it differently with those philosophers at Mars Hill and in the Agora and there in the Parthenon. He's going to do it differently than he does in the synagogues. So you're going to learn some really valuable lessons about how to evangelize the world around you that's very, very different from you. So, um, yeah, you're seeing this now with, with Peter staying in the home of Simon the Tanner, who, you know, was probably Jewish, but not a good Jew. He couldn't go. He was ritually impure all the time. He, but somebody has to be a Tanner, right? Um, but he was ritually impure all the time. So he goes and stays there. And now he's going, to, he's going to book it up the coast to Caesarea where the Roman soldiers are stationed. That's the provincial capital in Judea. And you're going to see Peter's progression. It takes, a, one, it takes another vision to help Peter move along a little bit. But you're going to see some more of Peter's progression in learning how to deal with people outside his tribe. And you'll learn through the rest of the New Testament when you deal with people outside your tribe what you can let go of and what you can't let go of. And you see that acted on in the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament. And I would contend the rest of Christian history, basically. So, um, next week, we start with this wild vision with Peter that he receives on the roof as he's praying that prepares him for the coming of these emissaries from uh, Cornelius to bring him to Caesarea. Let's pray together.